You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. I feel like who art Ed? Who art Ed? Mr. Wood, art Ed, me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood. And for today's episode, since it is getting close to the end of the season and almost the end of the Arts Madness Tournament, we started five weeks ago with 64 different artists. And after thousands of votes, we are down to our final two Georgia O'Keeffe versus Yayoi Kusama. And so what I thought I would do is for this week's episode, I threw together kind of a cheesy clip show. I have the background information on both of those two artists so that voters can decide which should be the ultimate winner, the mentor or the protege, Georgia O'Keeffe or Yayoi Kusama. So up first here, we have the background information on Georgia O'Keeffe. Georgia O'Keeffe was actually from the Midwest. I always associated with her, her with the Southwest, but she was born in, um, in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. She was born uh, November 15th, 1887, and her parents were dairy farmers, so she grew up in kind of that rural Wisconsin environment. Um, it's funny like to see she was named after her grandfather. You know, you always think of like family names living on. You never think of it like crossing genders. But she was yeah. named after her, her her grandfather, George Victor Toto. Um, and she was the second of seven children. So coming from that that big family. Um, you a know, lot of brothers and sisters. I know. I know. And and she was one of the older ones, which both of my parents grew up in like big families and were uh, like, you know, my mom always talks about how like she was the oldest and she was like the second mother, you know, like she was in charge of helping to take care of some of her younger siblings. Yes. And from what I understand, George O'Keefe actually had a, a similar role. There were some points in her life where she was like kind of helping to take care of younger siblings. Um, but she's one of those artists that I guess from, from an early age, she always knew she wanted to be an artist when she was like 10, she and her sisters started taking, um, taking painting lessons from a local watercolor artist. And 
1905-1906, she studied at SAIC, or the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, where she was like one of the top in her class, but she had to take a year off because of typhoid fever. Yikes. I know. Like, that's one of those things that, like, you just think of it. It's so funny to think of. Well, I guess it's not that removed from our reality right now as we're in a pandemic. But, like, that kind of stuff happened all the time in the early 20th century where people would have these horrible diseases that now we don't even think about. Right. So, I mean, maybe that gives us hope that, you know, yes. some things will will not be a part of our daily lives. From, from um, modern medicine things. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but she had typhoid fever. She had measles. She Her mom had tuberculosis. It was like, you know, the bingo card of everything yeah. from from that era. Uh, but she had to leave SAIC for, for a little while. She took bas- basically like a year off to recover. And then she continued her education at the Art Students League of New York, 1907. Um, and then while she was in New York, she was visiting galleries of like modern artists, you know, she including like she went to uh, 291, which was owned by her future husband, Alfred Stieglitz. Wow. You know, and Stieglitz was a photographer. He exhibited sort of the avant-garde stuff from uh, from Europe and the United States. And at that time, you know, early 20th century, the avant-garde, we would be talking about like cubism and things like that kind of coming up, as well as like photography was a big influence on her, um, you know, because the Stieglitz and later the connection, he he connected her with like other artists, you know, strand and stuff like that. Right. But that photographic approach of like the close cropped imagery. Well, it's that yeah, zooming in on features and kind of having that macro lens film that you would do in photography. Yeah. And so that was influential in her work. Like I said, she was going to those galleries and, you know, she was a painter, but, you know, she was also appreciating photographers and and works in other media that kind of influenced her compositional style. So in 1908, she unfortunately had to end her education. Um, She wasn't able to afford to continue um, studying, basically. Like her father had had basically gone bankrupt. Um, As I said, she grew up initially in a dairy farm in Wisconsin, but uh, her father had moved the family to Virginia. Like they sold the dairy farm. He invested in starting his own business, thinking he was going to be fabricating like concrete blocks. But I guess like it just, the business never took off. Fell through. And then on top of that, like her mother had tuberculosis, as I said, like it was just there were a lot of difficult health conditions that everybody was dealing with all the time then. And so she kind of she went into the workforce. So, you know, in 19, uh, 1908 to 1910, she's in Chicago. She's working as sort of like a commercial artist. And then she had to leave that because she had the measles. Um, and she began teaching art actually in 1911, which I always find funny, like thinking about, I don't know that I read, did she get her degree at that point? Cause she had to discontinue her education for a while. Yeah. 
I don't know. Maybe it was just different back then. You didn't have to have an education degree to do that. Now that you're saying that, I'm thinking Grant Wood was also an art teacher in Iowa. And I don't think he came back from the army and started teaching art. So I don't think he had an education degree either. Yeah, I feel like it. I feel like at that time, it was just like, you can draw, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, actually now cuz I'm now that I'm thinking about like my, you know, way back history of education and like the educational reform movements and stuff right. from our teaching credentials. Yeah, like you probably at that point it was just enough that you demonstrated an, an ability in the content area you're teaching. Yeah. Cuz you think about like licensing systems and stuff it's gone right. through That's its own evolution. Yeah. Um so that's just like an odd bit. But yeah, she was okay. she was teaching at, at actually different levels. I think early on she was she actually taught at like the high school she went to for a while. Interesting. Not like while she was a student there, but she like went back oh. to the high school that like she had attended and then was teaching there for a little while. Yeah. I wonder if kids could imagine being like a teacher at their elementary school like later on. That would just be very weird. It, it feels like it would be kind of surreal because you have to imagine, especially she was relatively young at that point. You know, she wouldn't have been that far out of high school. Probably a lot of her former teachers became her colleagues. Yeah. Um, just kind of an interesting bit there. Very interesting. But, you know, from there, like I said, she was she was teaching for a while and she did continue her education eventually. Like in 1915, she was teaching at Columbia College, Columbia, South Carolina. So like I said, she she taught at different levels. She got to that college level. And it was around that time that she started doing some of the, I would say we start to see the seeds of like what would become her signature style where like she created this series of 10 charcoal drawings um, and they were kind of abstracted, kind of innovative in the way that they had these organic shapes that were a little bit reminiscent of nature, but also a little bit abstract. And she, she shared those with a friend who then passed them on to Stieglitz. And so in 1916, she's in New York. She's at the Teachers College of Columbia University. And, you know, Stieglitz sees that series of drawings and he loved them. He said they were like some of the freshest, most original drawings he had ever seen. And he starts to introduce her around. He wants to show her work at his gallery. Um, you know, Stieglitz was 24 years older than O'Keefe. So, like, he was much more established in his career at that time. Um, and, you know, he starts to introduce her to, like, Charles DeMuth and other, like, modern painters, but also, you know, the photographers, like I said, at that time. And that was influential on on her development and embrace of the somewhat the abstraction that was a new trend in modern art at that time. But also, like I said, the photography and the way that you crop a composition. Yeah. Well, and he would have brought her into kind of that New York art world. So she would have met, since he's already really established there, she would have met all these different artists and like known who to talk to and who to like look at their artwork as well. So he really like helped her 
to start her career. Yeah. And, and actually he really helped to elevate her career later on. Um, like I said, he was selling her, her stuff. And I guess at, and this is one of those stories that I, I always find like is so much about the ridiculousness of the art world, but I guess he at one point told the press that he sold six of her paintings to an anonymous French collector for $25,000. And like, from what I've read, there's like no record of this like transaction occurring. (laughs) But from that point on, she was a much more bankable artist because like that garnered some publicity and people were like, Oh, if a French collector is paying thousands of dollars for her paintings, you know, she's got got that that seal of approval. You yeah. know, um, yeah. So like from that point on, her work was fetching higher prices. She was, a, a, you know, gaining that stature and that that prominence. Um, and, you know, that continued throughout the rest of her life. And even actually after her death in in 2014, her painting White Flower Number One, which was painted in 1932, it sold at auction for over $44 million. Wow. It was like more than three times the record from a female artist at that time. And I, I love her flower paintings for, for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that I, I always found interesting is Stieglitz was, was guilty of this too, but like a lot of critics talked about her flowers as being symbolic of femininity and everything like that. But she was very adamant and forceful in her pushback saying, no, it's a flower. This is about observation. Her work was drawn from observation. And as much as it's associated with abstraction, in a lot of ways, it feels stylized to me because her, I would say her most famous work it is directly from observation of nature, of flowers, the desert landscape. Yes. It's got a unique cropping that gives a little bit of an abstracted feel. But she was very, very adamant in her assertion that, no, this is just observation. Yes. I do know as a child, she really liked, she was into science and studying like why things, how things are made, Um what like makes something grow. There's even a story I use. I always tell the kids that she used to try dirt as a child to see what it would different dirt would taste like, like just as an experiment. I mean, she was probably like three or four, but she was very into science. So you can kind of see, you can see that in her artwork. It's like that zoomed in observation of the flowers and really just trying to study it and get to know every single part of that flower. Yeah. And she's, she's best known for her, her work of flowers. Like she, she made like 200 paintings of those close cropped flowers, but she, she did turn that same focus to other subject matter as well. She, she did, like I said, when she was in New Mexico, she was painting the desert landscape, but also she was painting rocks. She was painting leaves. She was painting just all sorts of things. It seemed like the common thread to me was this close examination of nature and a unique viewpoint on it. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, 
Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. And now I'm going to play the clip with the background information on Yayoi Kusama, who was actually inspired by George O'Keefe, corresponded with O'Keefe, and was guided and mentored and supported by George O'Keefe early in her career. So today we are talking about Yayoi Kusama, the contemporary Japanese artist, um, and we're going to start off with just a little bit of background. I know you've seen her work. Do you know much about her background? Um, yes. The, the exhibit was organized kind of like historically so that you started at her early work and then saw more current as you went through. Um, she was born in Matsumoto, Japan, um, and she moved to New York in 1957. And she studied art in Japan, but it was very traditional from what I understand. And she really sort of hit her stride when she came to New York and it was a little bit more freeing. Yes. Um, and she was actually inspired by Georgia O'Keeffe to come over to America. She saw her work and wrote to her and Georgia O'Keeffe actually followed up. They were kind of pen pals. Yeah, George O'Keefe was George O'Keefe was awesome. George O'Keefe, if you do, if you need another reason to love O'Keefe, I know um, she like she not only like was encouraging in the correspondence. From what I understand, she gave her business advice, and even when uh, Kusama like was on hard times financially because of like hospitalizations and stuff like that, O'Keefe had her art dealer buy a number of pieces from Kusama. Oh, I had no idea about that. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. I know. Like just an, another awesome thing about O'Keefe. Um, so Kusama came over and it seems like from everything I've read, it seems like she was making contacts and like a savvy business person and getting herself into the art world like right away. Um, you know, she was not only was she corresponding with O'Keefe, but I think, uh, was it Donald Judd maybe, yeah. uh, was an early supporter of her work and things like that. And she, like her work was largely, um, associated with a little bit of pop, but also minimal minimalism. And there's like a psychedelic element to it as well. Um, it's kind of an interesting fusion of things that were, were happening in like the mid to late uh, 20th century. So it really sort of like hit at just the right time when sort of the hippie movement was happening, the counterculture feminism. And, and her work has a lot of that sort of critique. And, and she aligned herself with a lot of those social movements. Yeah, uh, politically involved. And um, additionally, with the pop artist movement, she was friends 
friends and foes with Warhol too. Um, and they kind of worked together at a point, but then he ripped off one of her like repeating wallpapers, the cows. Of course he did. Yeah. So of course he they did. are no longer friends at that point, which is sad. But I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if you're friends with if you're friends with O'Keefe and you get Warhol out of your life, it seems like he's coming out <laughs> ahead on that one. Yeah, I guess I would choose O'Keefe <laughs> over Warhol any day. Oh, certainly, certainly. Um, now, one of her most famous things is what she refers to as her infinity nets, the the dots that are the re- recurring motif. And from what I understand, that even go, like goes back to her childhood. She grew up; her family had a nursery, like a nursery growing like plants and things like that. And the way I understood it was, she was the repetition of dots sort of started with visualizing like cells and things like that, um, plant cells, and we just see it everywhere. And it is her way of sort of making sense of infinity, as well as handling her mental health um, struggles and things like that, um, because she did not have the best childhood. I, I I hate to dwell on the problems, but I think it is worth mentioning that like you know she did have a, a very difficult. Uh, childhood growing up her mother was very very strict and you know not only strict in expecting her to be more traditional in terms of the culture but um, it was an abusive situation that that she thankfully got out of you know I, I always like to to think about this not because of the horrible things that happened in her life um, and and see her just as a victim but like she's she's resilient she is strong she broke away from that she got away from from a, a horrible and difficult situation and she found multiple ways of overcoming that and and transcending it um, not just with her the therapeutic aspects of her art but you know she also sought medical treatment when necessary um, to to move beyond those things that that were so difficult early in her life and she still is um, she still struggles with and is moving past the long-term effects that that has she constantly wanted to escape though throughout that childhood and um she grew up on the nursery, like you said, and she wanted to know what was beyond the mountains and within the mountains. Um, so her goal of getting out was always within her mind. Um, that sounded terrible. <laughs> it was not a complete no, it's, thought. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it's totally true, though. Like getting, yeah. getting out was on her mind yeah. as rightfully it should have been. And in some ways, art was an escape. It was also her means of getting out, Mm -hmm. like not, not just sort of, um, dissociating and, and escaping mentally, but like physically getting out. She moved from Japan to New York. One of the things I want to pick up on though there that I, I heard you say that I thought was really, really interesting and goes to the heart of this was you talked about her wanting to see what's beyond the mountains and in the mountains. And I feel like there's this inside and outside um, characteristic to her work where she's exploring a little bit of like cells and underlying structures that make things up, but also the infinite and what is far beyond with her her reflections and, and the infinity rooms and things like that. Yeah, so within her exhibition, there were a couple video clips that she created, and it was everything is a dot. And 
just that thought for me, um, thinking about it artistically and just generally is overwhelming um, to the point that I, it makes me rethink the world. And I think that's what makes her such an amazing artist is because of how literally she has rethought uh, thought the world to the point of Estelle. Um, and then the vast universe of dots beyond us. So, and that goes back to her studying the plants and within the nursery and from cells to seeds to small, um, small plants and then their full grown potential. I, I, I see that and I, yeah. I get what you're saying. I, it's, it's funny to me though, like that's, that's exactly why I cannot stand like <laughs> like, like for me, and, and this is, I guess, revealing of me personally, like one of my earliest like memories of childhood was like nightmares of like just infinite and like trying to wrap my head around it. Like you talked about how it's like just that mind blowing aspect of it. And it's like, and to me, it feels just overwhelming and like horrifying. It is like the stuff of my nightmares to be like just seeing, looking out into the abyss, you know, and seeing that infinite reflection of dots and stuff like that. I Um, totally understand. I guess I, the way that she has conveyed it within the infinity rooms and using light, um, makes it a lot more comforting to me when, when I see it and almost like a more elegant version of infinity in a way. Yeah, I, I could see I could see what you mean there. So there you have the background information on both of our two finalists in the Arts Madness tournament, and you can vote for your favorite to win at www.whoartedpodcast.com. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted. If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.